I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. We began looking at this last week, and I think I'll pick up the reading at 12, but just to set the scene, if you happen to not be here last week, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, a very powerful Babylonian king, has set up a very large golden image, and he is commanded that when the music plays, everyone is supposed to bow down and worship the image. And our friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Jewish exiles in Babylon, uh, refused to bow the knee to the golden idol. And that brings us to verse 12, which, let me, let me back up, I need to tell you something else. Uh, some people, Chaldeans, uh, these were the wise men of Babylon, of whom Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were a part of, they uh, go and report to Nebuchadnezzar that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not bowing the knee as the king has commanded. And so now we pick up the reading. This is what the Chaldeans say. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over their bodies of those men. 
The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Well, last week I made two points concerning the passage before us today, which set up the fact that Christians live in a hostile environment today. It's very difficult to live for Christ in the world in which we live. And the first point I made last week is about rampant idolatry. Uh, we have the same pressure to break the first two commandments that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had in their experience with Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. Exodus 20 commands anyone who would follow God that they shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew this command, and they were following this command. And when they were faced with worshiping that golden image, they refused to bow the knee. Well, just like our three friends, there is pressure on us to engage in idol worship. But unlike them, who were pressured to physically bow down to a golden image, we are tempted with what are called idols of the heart. In front of your bulletin is a quote that tells us what an idol of the heart is. It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or career and making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. It's not hard to understand uh, an idol and that, uh, how much it can mean to a person. Think of the businessman who is seeking to climb the corporate ladder. If he doesn't get the promotion, he hardly feels his life is worth living. He centered his whole being around getting that promotion. Anybody that blocks that becomes an object of his anger. It controls his life. So he, he has to overwork to achieve that goal. And it completely dominates his life. That's idolatry. And you could, put, you could substitute uh, climbing the corporate ladder with anything, a romantic relationship. 
Uh, even good things, like it says here, success in Christian ministry. Preachers can fall into this uh, just as well as anybody else, thinking that, hey, if the pews aren't full, then I'm a failure, or, or if uh, you know, there aren't conversions, or, or whatever standard we set up, we, we have to have it, and it controls us. Our world, the society in which we live, is constantly and consistently encouraging us to embrace idols of the heart. Particularly, idols that are, promote, that, that are promoted in our world are material pleasures, I mean, material possessions and physical pleasures. You need to have this experience or you need to have this material good to make your life worth meaning, the latest phone or the, or the coolest car, whatever it might be. That's why we spend so much money on advertising because we're materialists and we worship having material goods. Not only does our world promote idols, but hand in hand with that is that our flesh craves them. We have this tendency to worship created things rather than the creator. The Bible tells us to not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, the desires of the flesh, that which our flesh craves, we must have. That which we see, ooh, I want that. I need that to make my life have meaning. The pride of life, it's literally pride in possessions. You know, we, we accumulate all this stuff around us, and we think that's who we are. That's what gives us our, our, our lives meaning. But these things, John tells us here in 1 John 2, is passing away. It's passing away. It's worthless. Idols, idols of the heart, are very real and very dangerous. Well, the second point I made last week was that when you do not go along with the idolatry of the world, say you say, I'm not going to become a materialist. I'm not going to pursue all the things that the world values and puts forward as, as things that make your life have meaning. When you don't do that, when you go and put God first in your life, you're going to experience conflict with the world. The world is not going to like it. Our three friends faced the ire of the Chaldeans and the fury of Nebuchadnezzar because they would not bow the knee like everyone else was doing in verse 7. They refused to bow to the idol, refused to conform to the status quo, and this gets them into trouble. And we said last week that faithfulness to the Lord always eventually will bring you into conflict with the world. People will ask, why don't you just go along with what everyone else is doing? Or you're just being extreme or fanatical. Faithfulness to the Lord will not get you thrown into a fiery furnace in our day, but it will get you thrown into the fiery furnace of disapproval or unpopularity, etc. At some point, Christianity will come into conflict with our culture at large. Why is that so? Romans 1 tells us. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Then Paul goes and talks about uh, all the sins that flow from this rebellion against God and this tendency to worship created things rather than the creator. He's, he goes, to, goes on to say, though they knew, know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And by implication, we can say they give disapproval to those who refuse to practice those things. They do not like it because they know in their heart of hearts that there is a God and they know they are not following him. When someone comes along who is following him, the world is not going to like it because it reminds them of their failure to worship the God that they are suppressing and pushing back in their unrighteousness. And it makes them feel uncomfortable and they cannot stand it. Well, this brings us to the points I want to make today. Uh, we live in this hostile environment, idolatry and the hatred of the world. Uh, we're, we're, we're being bombarded by these things. How do we negotiate that? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego negotiated it. They made it through and they were faithful to the Lord. What resources can we see that were at their disposal are at our disposal as well? And we see three things especially. We have God's word, God's presence, and God's deliverance. These three things are at our disposal as we seek to live for the Lord in this idolatrous world that hates Christianity. Firstly, we have God's word as we live for him in a hostile environment. Our three friends were brought before the most powerful earthly ruler known to man at that time. Nebuchadnezzar. And this king was not happy with them. Verse 13 tells us that he was in a furious rage. But then it gets worse. After they tell him that under no circumstances are they going to worship and serve his gods, verse 19 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. I mean, he was already uh, enraged, a furious rage, and now he's filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He was willing to give them a second chance. But now that they said what they've said and that they're not going to bow the knee, then you could just see his countenance, the fury from within spilling out into his face. And he orders the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Well, how are they able to stand faithful in the midst of such incredible hostility against them? Three things. First of all, they trusted God's will. They knew what God required of them and they were resolved to do that. They understand the commandments that they should worship God and, and no other gods. Even though they were schooled in all the ways of the Babylonians, chapter 1 told us, they still held God's word in higher esteem than the word of the Babylonians. We will never be faithful to the Lord if we do not know God's will. Yeah, we can, we can know all about the world and what it's teaching and what it believes. And we will fall into thinking like the world if we do not know God's will. If we don't know what he wants, then how can we do what he wants? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew God's will and trusted it. And there's a difference between knowing it and trusting it. 
Not only did they understand it, know it, but they trusted it. They put it into practice. They said, God has said it, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to live by that standard. I'm going to follow his will. So they they had God's word. We have his word even better than they do. Uh, We have Old and New Testament. We have it nicely bound in hardback cover, leather cover, any cover you want. You can have it on your phone. You can have it delivered to your email box on a daily basis. God's word uh, is totally available to us. And it's our own fault if we don't know it. If we don't read it, it's there for us. We don't even have to read it. We can listen to it. They make tapes and CDs and people reading God's word to us. We really have no excuse. They knew God's will and they trusted it. They followed it. They put it into practice in their lives. They not only trusted God's will, they trusted God's power. In verse 17 they say, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. How do they know this? Has it been their experience? Have they experienced deliverance from the Lord before this? Actually, no, they have not. They have seen Jerusalem sacked by the Babylonians and themselves deported to Babylon. If anything, their experience tells them that their God is not as powerful as Babylonians because the Babylonians came and ransacked God's house, the temple in Jerusalem. They took some of the furniture out of the temple and took it and put it in the temple of their God in Babylon. And it was a a display of saying, hey, our God's better than your God because look, your God's stuff is in our God's house. And that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had seen out of God so far. But they knew God's word and what it says of his power and how in times past he had exercised that power in delivering his people, like when Moses parted the Red Sea by God's power and God's people were saved. And you could list off countless other stories that I'm sure they had been told, that they had read about, and that they had understood and embraced in their hearts. How do we know God is able to save us? His word tells us of past deliverances, like when three young men were thrown into a fiery furnace and they came out without even smelling like smoke. Or how after three days the Son of God rose from the dead, guaranteeing a resurrection for all his people. They trusted in a God who is able, who has the power to deliver. They put their lives in his hands. What about us? Do we believe in this God who has the power to save, who has the power to do greater things than we've ever imagined? We should never sell short God's power. Well, they also trusted in God's wisdom. Look at verse 18. Well, you can back up to verse 17. They say, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning of the fire furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They said, but if not. That indicates even though God is powerful enough to deliver them from Nebuchadnezzar and his furnace, he in his wisdom... He, being God, God in his wisdom may not deliver them from the fiery furnace. 
God may think it best that they do go into the fire. They entrusted themselves to a wise God who works all things together for the good of his people. That which is meant for evil, they knew God can use for good. So they're not presumptuous. They entrust themselves to God's wisdom, to God's providence, and how he has willed things to fall out for them. We must believe that if we are to survive in a hostile environment, things will be difficult. The world will be hostile. The furnace will be heated. But God is wise. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew this, and they put their lives in this wise God's hands. Do we trust God in the trial, in the midst of the trial? You notice they're not saved from the fiery furnace. They're saved in the fiery furnace. And the same is true of us. We go through many trials. Jesus warned us that that would happen. If they hated me, they're going to hate you as well if you follow me. We're not delivered from these troubles. But God in his wisdom has has ordained that we go through those troubles. Do we abandon our faith in the times of difficulty? These men did not because they trusted in God's wisdom. Well, not only do we have God's word, we have God's word at our disposal that tells us of of his power, uh, of his wisdom, uh, of his will. But we have God's presence. They throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and, and Nebuchadnezzar looks in and he sees not three people in there, but four people walking around, having a party, you know, doing their thing in the fiery furnace. And he's amazed, as anyone would be. They're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth, he says, is like a son of the gods. Well, let's ask the question, who is this fourth being? Is it Jesus? Many interpreters from the, earlier, from the earliest Christian times have suggested that indeed it is a pre-incarnate uh, uh, appearance of Jesus on the scene. Uh, but it's impossible to be dogmatic about that unless we insist that every uh, incarnate appearance of God must be the second person of the Trinity. Nebuchadnezzar identifies uh, this fourth being as an angel in verse 28, but what does he know? He's a pagan king. You know, we're safe if we say what we have here is a reflection of the Emmanuel principle. The word Emmanuel means God with us. God dwelt with those three friends in the midst of the flames to preserve them from harm, whether it's Jesus or one of God's angels. Either way, God was there. God was with them. God protected them. God delivered them in the midst of the fiery furnace. As Isaiah 43, what we read for our call to worship this morning said, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Notice that it says, when you pass through the waters, when you walk through the fire, I will be with you. I will be with you. I've given you a verse on the outline that I've provided for you, 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We entrust our souls to a faithful creator. He will be with us. He's promised. If you're God's child, no matter where you are, God is with you. And especially when you suffer for righteousness, he's with you through the fire, through the flame. We have God's presence. He is Emmanuel. He took on human flesh and dwelt among us. He knows what we go through. He's able to empathize and sympathize with everything that we struggle with. He's with us. He knows our our pain and our trouble and turmoil. He knows it even more than we do. Well, not only do we have God's word and God's presence, but we also have his deliverance as we live for him in a hostile environment. This is our hope that we live for. Our three friends say something very interesting, something that I find very curious in verse 17 and 18. Uh, He says, they say to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, our God is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, so he's saying three different things. He's able, God is able to deliver us. God will deliver us, but he might not deliver us. Isn't that a strange thing to say? But you know what? It's all true. All three are true. Because even if they die in the fiery furnace, they will be delivered from the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. They will be delivered from the fiery furnace. They will never have to face Nebuchadnezzar or the fiery furnace again. They will be with God forever. Jesus Christ ensures that for us. He came to earth to dwell in a chaotic world. uh, And we experience death. He experienced death. Death on the cross, not so that we might escape the experience of death, but that we might have victory over it. He delivered from it. So no matter what we face, even death for the sake of Christ, we will be delivered. We have a guarantee. And this knowledge gives us freedom. Our hope is not in the world and the things that we accumulate and the, the idols that the world is telling us we must have. We're going to leave all those things behind. As John told us, those things are passing away. But what God has promised and what God is giving us lasts forever. And that's where our hope lies. So we can live in this world facing the fire, facing the pressures, facing uh, what the world throws at us because we have a hope that is an anchor for the soul, the writer of Hebrews says. Something more that we look forward to that we're living for that is to come. And we know that we, we will be delivered. It's guaranteed because of what Christ has done, because he rose from the dead. Even death itself, it has lost its sting, it's lost its power, 
It's nothing but a step into eternity with the Lord for us. And that gives us that hope and gives us the freedom to live for Christ in a hostile environment. Let's pray together.